Turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 20. Coming to the conclusion of this book, 24 chapters. You do the math, we'll be done at the end of the month. But today we're in chapter 20. As I mentioned and I have been, we are studying the book of Galatians together. Beginning um, Palm Sunday, be, if you can, be in the book, read the book, study the book. There are Bibles in the back, by the way, if you don't have, I can't put all the verses up. Uh, but we're going to be in Galatians, and uh, just be ready for that. It'd be great. We do expository preaching here, preaching through books of the Bible. So 2 Samuel chapter 20, Bible's in the back. Um, as we get into chapter 20, uh, chapter 20 is, is sort of a, a conclusion of, of David's story in the sense of, a, of his story about his kingdom. After this, chapter 21 through 24 is what's been called the, the epilogue, the conclusion. But here in chapter 20, concludes the account of David's rise to, to his kingdom uh, as king, uh, his, re- his fall, we saw that, and his restoration as king. And at the end of chapter 20, uh, we'll see David's restored kingdom, but unfortunately, it's, it's, it's in rebellion. Uh, it, it ends, as we see, with, with a kingdom that is not stable. If you notice with me in chapter 20, the last uh, few verses, there's a list uh, of men uh, who serve sort of as uh, Joab, uh, excuse me, David's uh, cabinet. Chapter 20, verse 23 through 26. There was a list like this, the other bookend, uh, back in chapter 8. And, and, and when, we, when we were there in chapter 8, I just want to remind you of a way of just uh, introduction that David, back in chapter 5, has been, had, had unified the kingdom. He had brought the southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern tribes, the ten tribes together, and he unified the kingdom, and he was crowned king over all Israel in chapter 5. In chapter 6, he fights the Philistines. He does what kings do, fight and win for their people. In chapter 6, he brings in the Ark of the Covenant into the captured city of Jerusalem. The visible representation of God's presence among his people. The Ark comes into the city. Chapter 7, very important, God then makes a covenant with David. If you don't know chapter 7, verse 12, you should. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. God tells David through the prophet, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Remember, David wanted to. He said, no, no. He, your son, will build a house for my name. That will be Solomon. And then God tells him, but I will establish his throne. Your throne, David, your son's throne and his kingdom forever. Chapter 7, verse 13. In chapter 7, verse 16, it says, And your house, David, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your house shall be established forever. Chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. All is good. And then in chapter 8, at the end of chapter 8, verse 15, in this kingdom that has been established for David, it says, David reigned over all of Israel, and David administered justice and equity, or justice and righteousness to all his people. Things are good. And then, in chapter 8, verse 16, we have this list of men. These cabinet people that are with David in this established kingdom. Chapters 5 through 8 tell a wonderful story 
of David's beginning reign as king. And unfortunately, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing uh, this morning, but we know from chapter 8 moving forward, things really didn't go all that great. King David rebelled against God. He committed adultery. He committed murder and broke several other commandments. And although he was repented, he was forgiven of his sin, he had to deal with his consequences, serious consequences within his family and within his kingdom. Rape, murder, betrayal, just to mention a few. But most importantly, we've been studying over the past few weeks his son Absalom, David's son Absalom. He launched a huge conspiracy to dethrone his father from the kingdom. In fact, as we pick up the story in chapter 20, there's another conspiracy, kind of a counterweight of the story of Absalom's conspiracy. And I want you to know this morning that David's kingdom was never perfect. Someday, though, there'll be an eternal king. And that eternal king will reign with perfect justice, perfect equity, perfect righteousness for all his people. In fact, Isaiah picks up that and he says to us, we read this at Christmas, but it's applicable here. Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. That's Jesus. So as we pick up this text this morning, remember that although David's kingdom is unstable, there's still rebellion. He, David, was promised a kingdom that will never end. And we know who that is. That's why our series has been called The King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. So three things this morning. We're going to look at Sheba's revolt, Judah's revenge, and we'll end with Sheba's ruin and we'll go into communion. So follow with me. Chapter 20. Second Samuel chapter 20. Hear the inspired, infallible, authoritative word of God. Chapter 20, verse 1. Just read a couple verses, then we'll go along as we go. Now there happened to be, that's code word, God working, and there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his own, to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines who he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them. But did not go into them, so they were shut up until the day of the death, living in living if in widowhood. God had a blessing to the reading of his word. So let me just put some of that in context. So some of you have not been tracking with us. You're thinking, what the Okay? Absalom, David's son, is dead. He had conspired against his father and learned the hard way. You can't conspire against God, you're gonna lose. He conspired against his father to kill him and to take the kingdom. David, at that moment, when, when Absalom was coming after David, was in Jerusalem, and David fled Jerusalem 
Absalom was coming after him. He had to go. And now David, who was in Mahanaim, which is northeast of Jerusalem, he's there and he's coming back to Jerusalem because Absalom is dead. Last week, as I said, David was at Mahanaim, as they call it, northeast of Jerusalem, and he told Judah to meet him at Gilgal. As he's coming down, he would be going west and then south to Jerusalem. He said, meet me, Judah, in Gilgal. Gilgal is important because it's the place that the Israelites first came to before they went to the promised land. It was a place where the second generation renewed their vows. It was the place where Samuel, at the beginning of the book, brought the people together to renew their vow. And now David is calling Judah to Gilgal to, to go back to Jerusalem. Very important. And now remember the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, remember, there are 12 tribes. When we speak of Israel, we're talking for about the 10 northern tribes. When we talk about Judah, we're talking about the southern tribe, okay? And sometimes Benjamin is included. So all Israel, the north, it's important you understand this because you'll see in the text. It's the 10 tribes to the north. Judah is the one tribe to the south where in Benjamin where Jerusalem is. It's very important. And what you see in this text in chapter 19 and 20 is that the kingdom, the 12 tribes of Israel, have been fractured. That's why they, they mentioned the 12 tribes, uh, excuse me, the 10 tribes to the north and the one tribe to the south. And last week, David told Judah, meet me at Gilgal. And when David met Judah, the southern tribe, at Gilgal, Israel showed up, the other 10 tribes, and they were not happy. They were angry and jealous. And, and these two factions began to dispute and argue with each other. Who's going to bring the king home? Now, now it's important you remember that the southern kingdom of Judah and the other tribes, right before this, were all in favor of Absalom, the king. But now Absalom is dead, and everybody says, oh, we better, we better you know, change our thinking here, and we better you know, get on the right path, because our king, Absalom, is dead. And David wants to come back to Jerusalem. So let's argue over now who's going to bring him back, right? So... As we pick up chapter 20, verse 1, the scene hasn't changed. Remember, chapters and, and, and verses are, come later. In the original, there were none. David is with Judah in Gilgal, which is north of Jerusalem. Israel shows up. They're arguing. Who's going to bring the king home? Chapter 19 ends with Judah winning the argument. And while they're arguing in Gilgal, ready to come down to Jerusalem, Judah and Israel arguing, chapter 20 opens up. In that place. And there's a guy from the tribe of Benjamin, like Shimei, who cursed out David in chapter 19. He just happened to be there. This guy's name is Sheba. So this is the context. And Sheba's reputation goes before him. He's a worthless fellow. Man, literally man of Belial. We see this about five or six times in the book of Samuel already. Belial, the word uh, a son of Belial means, has, it has an association of like wickedness, rebellion. It was actually used as a proper name or a personification of Satan himself. Not a good person, right? So rebellion and, and wickedness has its roots in, in Satan. If you remember way back in chapter, I think one or two, no, chapter maybe one or two of 1 Samuel, Hannah, the, 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 the woman of faith, said, I'm not a daughter of Belial. I'm not a daughter of wicked. The sons of Eli, if you remember the priests, the sons, the priest Eli he had two sons. They were abusing people at the temple, sleeping with women at the temple. They were the sons of Belial. Nabal, the fool, was the son of Belial. 
Here's Sheba, the worthless one. And the Sheba, the worthless one, the son of Belial, the evil, wicked one, the rebellion one, sets a match. That's the way I look at this. The, the, the fumes were, were, were there. The gasoline was, was working. They're arguing. Who's going to bring the king home? And Sheba comes and sets a match. He, he appoints himself as leader of this dischanted tribes. He takes advantage of their discontent, and he declares himself leader of Israel. And under his leadership, he blows the trumpet and declares, we have no inheritance with the son of Jesse. Verse 2. And all the men of Israel, fickle as can be, withdraw from David, but the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan down to Jerusalem. And notice what he says, they have no inheritance. Inheritance is a rich word for the Jewish people. It should be for us too. They inherited the promised land. And over and over in Scripture, it's about the inheritance of the Lord, the inheritance of the Lord. Not only land, but also for Israel as God's own people. They were his inheritance. And Sheba's message was that the people of Israel will not find what was rightly theirs if they follow David. God's gift to them will not come to them. And that's why he's called wicked, really. That's why he's a rebellious one, because he is rejecting in that moment the chosen one of God, the anointed of God. He's rebelling, and he's calling the northern tribes to rebel with him against God's anointed king and to break the covenant that King, king David made with the tribes and to go their own way. You see, Absalom's rebellion had sought to remove David as king, and now this calls a conspiracy to the nation to withdraw from his command. David's not only dealing with this conspiracy, conspiracy as he comes home, but next he's confronted with his concubines as he comes into Jerusalem. He had left them there, if you remember, to, to take care of the palace as he was running out of Jerusalem, away from Absalom. If you remember Absalom, when he came into Jerusalem, self-appointed king, had sex with these women in public, claiming to be their new, I'm now the king of Israel. It's a custom of that day. As a new ruler of a new dynasty would take the concubines of the harems that were previously somebody else's, previously somebody else's, and he would take them as their own. It was wrong for David to do that. I know it's the custom of his day, but he was wrong to follow the customs. And right here, there's no way out. David comes back to Jerusalem, and he can't go back to the way things were. They have been violated by Absalom. I think, and you have to ask, this is what I do anyway, if you study in Scripture, why put that verse in here? I mean, you could just bypass that story. I think it's in, I think the narrator puts it here, of course, God ultimately, because it's really the in-your-face reality of the consequences of David's sexual sins. Remember, David was told because what he did with Bathsheba and had adultery with her and murdered Uriah, her husband, when he had sex with her, remember he was on the rooftop, he sees her and, and seizes her. The prophet told him, what you did in secret, it's going to be done to you in front of everybody. And that's exactly what Absalom done when he was on the rooftop. Remember that story, chapter 16. And the sorrow of these women, as sad as it is, was brought about by David's sin, his, his 
Uriah and Bathsheba event that took place. Bill Arnold, one commentator, writes this. The narrator's inclusion of this reference to the fate of the innocent victims of Absalom's conspiracy illustrates the human tragedy so often found among the women in David's life. Yeah, David provided for them. Yes, David protected them. When it says they were locked up or they were kept, it wasn't like they were chained, okay? He, he provided for them. He fed them. He, he, they weren't starving. They were confined and isolated, but alone. Another commentary. I, I just want to read this to you. Brueggemann writes this. This is really good. The presence of a concubine suggests how much the monarchy has embraced the royal ideology of the Near East, which is, he writes, inimical, harmful, to the old covenant tradition. David takes a drastic step of confining the concubines and presumably having no more to do with them. In making this move, David not only distanced himself from his own former practice, but also offers a contrast to the conduct of Absalom, end quote. Even though David supports them, they're they're in a life of solitary uh, confinement in a way or singleness. Sin is horrific. Sexual sin, particularly here in this case, is dreadful. And sometimes it has long-lasting, permanent effects. These, these women, a desolate represents that David's kingdom has not been completely unified or restored. It suffers the consequences of sinful man. David was ultimately responsible. Even though Absalom did what he did, David, I believe, was ultimately responsible. And David... We talk about this all the time. David is not the kind of king. David will not be able to bind up the brokenhearted. David will not be able to wipe every tear from their eyes. But King Jesus will. These women included. Isaiah tells us he will bind up the brokenhearted. He will wipe away all the tears and brokenness of our lives. Conspiracy, concubines. Now look at David's concern. Verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, I'm going to throw a lot of names at you, you got to track with me. Then the king said to Amasa, Amasa, call the men of Judah together to me within three days and, he, and, and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, the southern kingdom, he's in Jerusalem, but he delayed beyond a set time that had been appointed to him. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. Okay, now track with me. Put your thinking caps on, okay? Amasa, if you remember, was Absalom's military leader. Absalom is David's son who conspired to kill his father, David. Amasa is his, Absalom's, military leader. Just We just saw Absalom get murdered. And then David takes Amasa, who was his enemy's leader, and makes him commander of his own army. Remember? I mentioned yesterday, uh, excuse me, last week. It's like Nancy Pelosi being declared Secretary of State. And all y'all laughed. And you can laugh again. That's okay. That's who Amasa is. Absalom's leader. Now, Absalom is dead. Now, Amasa is David's commander. Takes the job from Joab, who's with David for a long period of time. But as, he has trouble, obviously, he can't get the troops. We don't know why. He probably, probably nobody trusted him. I, know, I don't know if I would trust him. I could throw in something really funny, but I won't. I don't know if I would trust him. 
and he failed his assignment. And David knows that every day goes on. Remember, he, he got a little bit of break when he ran, a couple of days. He knows that every day means something. This worthless one, Sheba, has a better chance to come against him if he has more and more time. We got to get him right away. So he calls Abishai for the task. Who is Abishai? Joab's brother. Okay, following me? Joab, the commander of David's army for a long period of time, loyal man who's been replaced by Amasa. Abishai's his brother, Joab. So David calls Abishai, Joab's brother, who's been criticized multiple times for every time he sees something, he wants to kill somebody. Remember that? He wanted to kill Saul. Him and Joab killed Abner. They put their brother to death way back a few chapters ago. Abishai wanted to kill Shimei, or Shimei for cursing out David not once but twice. But now, all's forgotten. I need a job to get done. Let me get my killer, right? Got to get the job done. And here's the point. David comes into Jerusalem in this homecoming was far, far from easy and smooth. Exploitation for personal advantage continues in the kingdom and in our broken world today. In our homes, in the churches, we are, are the people of God that are what? To, to, to value unity, to seek peace, to act in faithfulness to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned this last week. There were multiple problems in the church of Corinth. And Paul addresses many of them in his first letter and second letter. But the first thing that Paul addresses with all their problem was their division. Lack of unity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, verse 9, as he gets ready to launch into this scathing rebuke for their disunity, he writes this. God is faithful. Listen. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. You call into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division among you, and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That's why he says, called into the fellowship of his son. You see that? I told you this before. We don't create unity. We join it. His name is Jesus. Unity does not mean there's an absence of conflict. Unity does not mean there's an absence of conflict, but it does mean we resolve our issues as we seek unity and peace through the Prince of Peace. There will be unity if we join him. If we, if we look to the cross, if we, if we look to the salvation that God has provided for us in the cross, if we work and, and look and, and, and work together for his glory that he is seen as sufficient, satisfied, our, our greatest treasure, as we live on mission, declaring and demonstrating the gospel, there will be unity. So well, how does that really work? Well, we resolve conflicts here in the church, brothers and sisters, by confession, repentance, and, and offering forgiveness because we have been forgiven much. We have unity in, uh, in where we're going as we, as we walk because we're headed in the same direction to glorify God, to live on mission, demonstrating, declaring the gospel. Those are the things that Jesus wants us to gather around and be in unity with him. Sheba's revolt. Disunity, brokenness, 
problems. Joab's revenge. Look at verse, uh, look, look with me at uh, verse 7. And remember, Joab replaced Amasa. But Amasa's not quick enough. So David calls another military warrior, Abishai, Joab's brother, verse 7. Okay, you follow me? He calls Abishai, Joab's brother. Now look at verse 7. And there went out after him Joab's men. Where did he come from? Cherethites, Pelethites, and all the mighty men. Abishai, you were told by David to go and go get Sheba, and it says, Joab's men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri, verse 8. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Oh, we have a, we have a family reunion. Everyone's together, one big happy family. Not. Amasa's running late. He'll soon be the late Amasa. He's at Gibeon, about six miles northwest of Jerusalem. Verse 8. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword. Not good. And a sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. It just happened to fall out. And Joab said to Amasa, it is well with you, my brother. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. It's a Don Corleone kiss. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, which was in his left hand. So Joab struck him in the stomach, spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Okay? This is like getting in the car not noticing Clemenza's in the back seat, if you know what I'm saying. One hand's empty. If you don't know what I'm talking about, see me after. I'll I'll lend you the movie. Anyway, Joab, true to his character, he's not going to be kicked to the curb. He's not going to take a sideline. He's not going to give up his job that easy, even if the king did it. He wants to be in charge. And he had his own ideas, we've seen this before, of how to safeguard David's kingdom. He had executed Abner when David made peace with him. He, 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 He executed Absalom when David said, don't hurt my boy. Joab's wanted to secure David's kingdom by force, by the sword, and through revenge. That was his way, and we see it again. Same thing. I don't think David knew. I think David sent Abishai, go do the task, and then all these guys show up, and the troops do more than just go to find Sheba. And what's interesting, this is at Gibeon. Gibeon's an interesting place. Because Gibeon, this is where this this takes place, at a place called Gibeon. Earlier in our story, Gibeon was the place where the 12, 10 tribes met the two tribes, and a fight broke out. A lot of people died, including Joab and Abishai's brother, because of that fight. Not there, but because of that fight. And later, Joab finds the guy, Abner, who did it, and kills him by cutting his stomach open. Guy's got a thing about cutting people's stomachs open. I'm sure it had bitter memory. I'm sure Joab understood and, and, and didn't, this didn't help at all. And he, and he greets him. Look at it. says, it is well. You know what well means? Well is the Hebrew word shalom. Is it shalom with you? And, and he gives him a kiss, a betrayal kiss, just like Judas did, right? A few centuries earlier. And what does he do? He, he drops his sword. Oops. I, I, picks it up with his, with his, with his left hand because his right hand is free. That's the fighting arm. Grabs a beard and sticks him and kills him 
and his ooey gooey guts fall all over the place. I hope he had breakfast, but he was an efficient killer. He was just as cruel as he was thorough, Joab was. For the second time now, he's taking out people who made peace with David. And it would not be forgotten. I mentioned this last week. David will tell his son Solomon to take Joab out because of this. In 1 Kings chapter 2. Look at verse 11. One of Joab's young men took a stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab, like who's going to say no? I favor Amasa. Like, no, I don't think so. He's not answering you. Whoever's for David, whoever's for Joab is for David. Let's follow Joab. And Amasa, verse 12, lays wallowing in his own blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the men saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa on the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. Verse 13, when he was taken out of the highway, all the people went after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So Joab's man is over him and just like, If you want to follow David, you have to follow Joab. You see what Joab is doing? I know he's behind it all. He's trying to say everything I'm doing, everything I said, all this is about what David told us to do, and that's not true. He wanted everyone to think that he was following the commands of David. He was securing the kingdom, sure, but I think what's happening is here is, is, is that Joab knows better. He thinks he knows better. And after he kills him, the guy's laying in the road, just like a rubberneck, right? You're you're on the road, you're driving, an accident way over there on another road. And the road you're on, everybody stops, right? Because everybody's got to see. You can't see nothing, but you got to stop. So they're like, yo, let's get this guy off the road and throw him in in the the street, in, in in the brush, and you're thinking, doesn't the Bible say all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable? Like, what? Well, I think what we can learn from this story is when someone tries to kiss you, look at both hands. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the consequence of David's sin had undermined the goodness of his kingdom. And Joab, even, even strong, brutal, Joab is not going to recover the kingdom. David's kingdom has become much too much like the kingdoms of this world, held together by things or people, actions like Joab. And it's a somber moment, really, in biblical history. David's kingdom will never, never really be fully established as it was in chapter 8. In fact, if you look at the text, you have your Bible open in verse 1, when it says he blew the trumpet, Sheba blew the trumpet, we have no portion, he says, in David. And we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his own tents, O Israel. That is almost word for word for what Israel say in 1 Kings 12 when the kingdom actually does split in two and the kingdoms will never come together again. Israel, the 12, 10 tribes of the north, two tribes to the south, Benjamin and Judah, will have their own kings. And both of them will be one sooner than the other. Northern will go first and the southern kingdom will be destroyed. That's the word they use. Joab's revenge include taking the conquest to himself, his gruesome cruelty, and now his device, decisive command. And then we see in verse 14, Sheba's ruin. And Sheba passed through, excuse me, yeah, passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maacah, and all the, this is Bichrites, assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel. They cast up a mound against the city and it stood against the rampart and they were 
battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, listen. Listen, Linda. She saw that video. (laughs) Tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. If you didn't see that video, I'll show you that one too. (laughs) And he came near her, and the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, they used to say in former days, she's going to give a proverb, let them but ask counsel of Abel. And so they settled matters. Verse 19, I am the one, I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother of of, in Israel. Why will you swallow, listen, up the heritage, there's that word again, of the Lord? And Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy, verse 21. That is not true. But there's a man in the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba the Bichri who has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone. Give him to me and I'll withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. That's some lady right there. (laughs) Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom and... They cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet and dispersed from the city every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Joab is hunting him like, like a dog. Hunts rabbits, right? Going from town to town. Now, you've got to think about this for a minute. If he's going from town to town, village to village, throughout all of Israel, everyone knows what Joab is doing. Everyone's on high alert, obviously. This place, Abel Beth Makkah, is in the far, far north of Israel, west of Dan. It's way out on the border. He has gone very far. Everyone's on high alert. And you could tell that Sheba's people are shrinking, right? Because they're not fighting. He's running. And he's, he's bunkered down in a city and... He sought refuge, and, and these people show up, and they, they, what is called, they siege it, which probably means, the text doesn't tell us, but history does, they probably shut the city down. Nothing in, nothing out. No food, no water. Like, no one's going anywhere. We'll starve you out if we have to. And at that point, they're not only going to destroy the city, but everybody in the city is, was likely to die. So they're continuing the, this relentless push, and now they're banging on the door. Everyone is somewhat terrified. And this courageous woman, and I would say a woman of faith, a wise woman, a courageous, unnamed woman, she's the only one that mentions the name of the Lord in the whole chapter. She's the only one. She's sharp. She's clever. Sharp, no pun intended. Clever and in insight. Insightful, and she calls out to Joab. And her thinking, her sharp response saves her. The people don't even know what's going on. Like, what's going on in the city? She calls out to Joab. Listen, why are you doing this? It was Joab who called the wise woman, remember, back in chapter 14, to go and speak to David. He reached Tekoa, remember that wise woman, to talk to David, to get David to reconcile with Absalom. Here is a wise woman. And she recounts, she says, look, this city is part of Israel. It's an inheritance of Israel. Why are you going to destroy it? We're a city, we've been known by our wisdom. Why will you do this? 
And Joab's like, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this, but I'm seeking one person. His name is Sheba. He raised up his hand. He is guilty and raised up his hand against the king. And if you will arrange this man, I'll spare the entire city. You can go your way in peace, and we will go our way in peace. And the woman assures Joab, okay, his head will be thrown over to you. And she convinces everybody in the city, smart, wise, in, in, uh, you know, in, uh, intellectual woman of faith. She, she convinces people, they take his head, and they cut it off, and they throw it over the wall. They contain the city, they converse with the lady, and whoop, the head appears, the cut off head. And the irony is somewhat unmistakable. Sheba, you raised up your hand against the king, now we will raise up your head and give it to Joab. The chase is over, he is dead, minimal casualties to this wise woman. And I think I need to just say, starting way back in chapter one of 1 Samuel, with Hannah, with Abigail, right? With the wise woman, chapter 14, this woman of faith. How much the women have played a major role, an important role, I should say, on the tactful, the tactfulness of, the, of this early monarchy throughout First and Second Samuel. It's just been absolutely wonderful to see them stepping up and doing faithfulness to God. So Joab returns, right? He goes back. You don't hear nothing about David. You're not really sure uh, what David thinks about this. His kingdom is somewhat secure. Uh, again, even though Joab went against the will of the king, he killed Absalom, he killed Amasa. Robert Bergen writes this, Sheba's severed head produced Joab with convincing proof that his military objective had been met. The war was over, true to his word. Joab sounded a trumpet, calling David's troops to suspend their actions, and they returned home. I don't think David welcomed them home. I don't think David was really pleased the way things were. He had, uh, had this general that was on his own, doing his own thing. Yes, he secured the kingdom. Yes, there was peace. Yes, there was some restoration. But Joab was a ruthless man. Now, the chapter ends, as I mentioned from the beginning, with a list of cabinet members. Turn there with me for a moment. There's a list of cabinet members, but what's very different about this list than when the kingdom started with equity and justice and David reigned in equity and righteousness, and now here it's a fractured, rebellious, broken kingdom. There's a difference between the two lists of cabinet makers. I want to point out three things really quickly. Number one, Joab, if you look in verse 23, is still the commander. Interesting. Number two, verse 24, there's a new position in the cabinet. Adoram, Adoram, is in charge of the forced labor. Now we have forced labor in Israel. That wasn't there before. But more importantly, I think, much more importantly, there's not a single mention in chapter 20, verse 23 to following, not a single mention that David was reigning over all Israel, administering justice and equity and righteousness to all his people. Like chapter 8, verse 15. Why? Because David was never to be perfect. His kingdom was never to be perfect. That's why the covenantal promise to David is so important. Family, listen. We are reminded by the story that there is, no, there, there is instability. 
There's instability. There's unpredictability in all human organizations, institutions, communities, nations. Nothing we can build, no structure we fabricate to support, protect, and provide for our world is without corruption. No matter how wonderful it begins, they will collapse. They will cause agony and sorrow. This is true even with things like roads and bridges and buildings, even to economic, legal, and organizational systems, they will collapse because of the consequences of human sinfulness. Woodhouse writes, human greed can cause, listen, human greed can cause the failure of an economic system despite the sound theory on which it was built. Human hatred can, cause, can lead to violence and war despite the best efforts of the body like the United Nations. Human hard-headedness can allow the vulnerable to suffer unnecessarily despite the hard work of charitable organizations or governments, end quote. Why? Because Jesus said, greed, hatred, jealousy, sexual sin, theft, false witness, slander come from where? The heart. What we need is not only a new heart, what we need is a renewed kingdom. A kingdom where, 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 where perfection reigns where righteousness is not just the norm, but the custom, it's the pattern. The Bible teaches us way back in Genesis 3 that the kingdom was broken, that Adam and Eve sinned, and and sin entered the world, and this jacked up, twisted, broken world was not what God meant it to be, and the hope of this world, the hope that you and I have is the renewal of the kingdom of God in which God's perfect, perfect will is done. God promised that kingdom to David. God promised to establish his kingdom forever. He made the promise to Adam. He made the promise to Abraham. He made the promise to Moses, to David, and he fulfills it in Jesus. And what we see in David's kingdom in the conclusion of this is two aspects. On the one hand, God anointed him. God chose him. God placed him over his people, and things were really good for a little bit. And then on the other hand, David's kingdom was flawed because he's flawed. His failings made his kingdom unstable. He was not all wise, all powerful, all good, establishing an eternal permanent kingdom of love and and justice and goodness because that will only happen when the king of kings comes. His, His kingdom eventually displayed the weakness of all human communities, but his weakness and his failures not only reminds us of our own failures and weaknesses, but it should provoke us Family, this morning, it should provoke us to hear the cry, to place our hope in an eternal kingdom. Come, Lord Jesus. C.S. Lewis was right when he said, I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfies it, that, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably... Earthly pleasures were not meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Eternity is written in the hearts of all of us. We long for that kingdom. We know about our brokenness. We know about this broken world. And the gospel, the good news of the gospel, the declaration of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is a call to come into this kingdom by receiving the king. The hope of the world is the promise that God made to David And it is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that announces that day in Revelation 11.5 when it says, the kingdom 
of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. Hebrews 12 says we have come to Jesus and we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It is the kingdom of God. And in this kingdom for which we belong, for which we are waiting, there's no place for underhanded ways like Joab. The kingdom cannot be built on on deceit, on brute force, but actually comes to us if we recognize like Sheba's brutal death that spared a city. One man was brutally murdered for the safety of all the people. Jesus was brutally murdered, not because he rebelled against the king, but because he actually submitted to the king, his God. Jesus' death was a substitutionary death. Like Sheba, either he dies for the city or the city dies. Either either Sheba dies or the city will perish, and either Jesus dies or the world stands condemned. That's the message of the gospel, substitute. Sheba died for his own sin. Jesus died for your sins. One man should perish so that a world can be saved and a people can be gathered. On this table, there's a bread and a cup of juice. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he was handed over to be crucified. He had the, 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 the Passover dinner with his disciples. And listen, listen to what he said in light of all we've been talking about. He took the bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said to them, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant. Now listen, two more minutes. The new covenant, the promise to Adam, Adam, the promise to Abraham, the promise to David, he will establish a new covenant, a promised everlasting kingdom will come through the king of kings. And then Jesus said, drink of this, this is the blood of, of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Then he says this, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day I drink it in new with you in my father's kingdom. The bread represents his body that was broken. The cup represents the blood that was shed for us, atoning for our sins. That's the gospel. Jesus lived the perfect life, a life we could never live, died the death we should have died, in your place as your substitute, absorbs the wrath of God, dies as a penalty for your sin, a debt for your sin. We all know that we owe debts for what we've done. Jesus dies as your debt maker, as your debt debtor, in your place as your substitute, and then buried in the grave with your sin, rises from the dead, victorious over sin, death, and hell, declaring to the world to come to King Jesus, submit to his kingship, and to enjoy him now and then forevermore in his kingdom forever, where righteousness will reign and perfection will come again. Paul said this, as often you eat of this bread and drink of the cup, remembering the Lord's Supper, listen, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The band's gonna play. We're gonna spend time confessing sin. We're gonna spend time repenting. That means turning from sin. But we're not gonna stay there. We're gonna get up. We're gonna celebrate all that Christ has done, the King of Kings, for dying for our sins and rising from the dead. If you're a Christian, the table's for you. If you're not a believer, just sing. We wanna talk with you. We love you. We're glad you're here. But this is the family table. All are welcome to come if you belong to Jesus, not just King's Chapel. If you belong to Jesus, you can come to the table. Take of the cup, take of the bread as the band is playing after we've spent time confessing and repenting of sins. Come and celebrate. 
Do you know King Jesus? Are you waiting for the king to come? Have you trusted him today? Are you relying upon him looking forward to his coming? Trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection, his soon returning king. I hope you are. And as we sing and celebrate, if you have never made that decision, today's the day. The band's gonna come up. We're gonna come down this aisle. If you could try the best you can, coming down two at a time. Coming down, and then we're going back around. You can go back to your chairs, okay? That's the way we're gonna do it. I know we changed it around. We're just trying to get it the best way to go. Father, it is easy, Lord, to... It is easy to see this story and to shake our head. And when we do that, we're really saying, oh, I could have done better. (laughs) I don't think so. But as we look at the story, we are so thankful that we have a king who has come already, who's lived that life that we couldn't live, a perfect life, who died the death we should have died, taking our sin upon himself, rising from the dead, as a clear indication that the atonement has been accepted. Thank you. As that promise has come true from back in Genesis, we know the promise of your eternal kingdom will also come true. So Father, help us as a family this morning to confess our sins, to repent, to turn from them, and then to celebrate and worship together that our risen king has come. The new covenant has been established in his blood. And that we may come by faith and believe. And we will be with him not only today, but forevermore. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.